Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. And Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are on to book 20 and I am going to give a summary and Jeff's going to ask an opening question. Uh, in book 20, we have Achilles getting ready to get back to the battlefield. He's got his armor from his mom which is something we didn't talk about in the last uh, pod, but which I found funny, uh, which is like your mom brings your armor <laughs> to the battle. Uh, but in this uh, in this book, we have the gods and this weird thing where Zeus just goes to the gods and says, you know what, go nuts. Uh, and he has a similar kind of call for a meeting that we saw in the last book. Uh, and he just says, hey, yeah, go go down there and fight which is the opposite of what happened last time Zeus mm -hmm. talked to the gods and said, whatever you do, don't fight. So we have another meeting and the gods get involved. And then Achilles goes out and starts killing a bunch of people and battles both Aeneas and Hector, who are both saved by the gods. So that's the short version of the short book and over to you jeff for an opening question and adding all the things that i didn't add in the summary oh man you're tempting me brian yeah thank you uh one, one thing that uh i will add is that the reason that zeus calls um all the gods together and says yeah go at it take your sides and fight um is because he says if he doesn't achilles is gonna kill hector right now um now why it would be a problem to have Achilles kill Hector right now uh, in this very book, uh, he doesn't say. It looks like he wants it to be delayed for some reason. Um, but this confirms something that we've been saying over and over again in this pod and that has occupied a lot of our attention. Achilles is by far the best of the Achaeans. Um, when he's on the battlefield, when everybody's forces are out, um, the Achaeans are just much stronger than the, than the Trojans are. Um, and so without the addition of the gods uh, on both sides, uh, Zeus thinks this, this um, conflict will not last uh, much longer. And so he calls them in. Um, but yeah, my question w was about uh, one of the things, or one of the people that Achilles fights, which is Aeneas. It's kind of the centerpiece of the book, this combat with Aeneas. Um, it's uh, prefaced by a relatively long um, exchange in conversation between Achilles and Aeneas, uh, during which Aeneas gives his genealogy, which is pretty complicated. Um, Aeneas is not killed in the battle, although it's clear that he's inferior to Achilles. Um, he's spirited away, he's saved. Um, and uh, the combat with Aeneas has this interesting effect. It prompts one of the gods to switch sides. So I think Poseidon declares, uh, when he initially goes down and the gods are arrayed on the two sides, Poseidon declares for the Achaeans. He's on the Greek side. Um, but at the prospect of Aeneas getting killed, Poseidon says, well, wait a minute. Um, this isn't such a good idea. Um, and he you know, arranges for uh, Aeneas to be saved from the combat. Uh, and so he essentially benefits the side that he had not initially declared for. Um, and some of the other gods on the Greek side say, oh, okay, you, if you want to do something about this, you can go ahead and do it, but we're not helping you because we're on the side of the Greeks. Um, so I'm just uh, interested in why we get so much of Aeneas in this book. 
And on one level, the answer is kind of obvious to me, and that's the dramatic level. Um, just like Zeus doesn't want you know, Hector to die in this book, um, Homer has something that needs to happen in this book uh, as Achilles is going after Hector. And it looks like um, Aeneas is a stand-in for Hector. Um, and so we have a combat with a, a surrogate for Hector. Um, but Aeneas doesn't die uh, in this combat, even though Achilles is much better than he is. So do we have any sense of why Aeneas might be interesting or important, such that he merits this kind of attention? I mean, I like what you say as a warm-up. Hmm. You know, something that in talking to some authors and helping edit some books, like the last couple of years, something that authors kind of come back to a lot is something called playing fair with the audience. And it's basically, you know, making sure the breadcrumbs can logically lead to a place. And so I like this as a, not the main battle, but we need to get some themes laid out in Achilles battling another hero that we're going to, you know, so then when it happens again with Hector, and there's one interesting line in this that gets repeated um, about the taunts yeah, that then doesn't happen. And so, not, not to jump ahead too much, but it's like line 200 where Aeneas is speaking to Achilles and says, Son of Peleus, do not hope to frighten me with words as if I were a child, since I know too well how to speak both taunts and words of slander. And then, and I have two versions here that I've been working off of, so it might take me a minute to find the second one. But uh, Hector then says the exact same words. Mm -hmm. Says, don't, don't, don't try to, and of course I can't find, oh, there it is. Uh, yeah, Hector is helmet flashing, never flinched, don't think for a, a moment, Achilles, son of a Peleus, you can frighten me with words like a child, a foot. I'm an old hand myself at trading taunts and insights. So there's the echo of that line specifically in both of those instances. So I'm kind of wondering why Homer's including that specifically. And that might help us understand, you know, why Aeneas and then Hector is the logical progression in this. And I have no idea why. So that's <laughs> well, I don't know about the progression. Um, we could talk about that, and that um, actually, I might have an idea about the progression. But um, just in terms of the talking, that I think does relate to um, being self-conscious about the drama here. Um, Achilles, as we saw in the in the previous book, and we didn't really talk about this very much in the last pod. Achilles wants to fight right away. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want gifts from Agamemnon. He doesn't care about getting Briseis back, apparently. Um, he doesn't even want the other uh, Achaeans to eat. He just wants to fight now. And so I suspect that he doesn't want to talk either. That talking is um, something that living people do. Uh, people who have... Uh, some stake in the way the world turns out or might have a prospect of working together in the future or something like that, right? People who have a relationship. And Achilles um, just doesn't want to talk. Uh, but if you're a poet who's going to be given a, uh, giving a spoken depiction of something, um, the talk seems to be pretty important. And a lot of the content is who these people are in a way that's not immediately visible, 
right? Not visible in their actions or in the, the similes or metaphors that we use about them. So that produces some very strange things, like Aeneas saying, um, do you know who I am? Do you know my lineage? Well, here are the, uh, you know, 14 people or whatever it is that, are, um, that I'm descended from, but why are we talking so much, <laughs> right? What need to talk so much? So this funny juxtaposition of let's fight, there's no need to talk, and this fight has to be prefaced by a great deal of talk. Um, is something that we end up encountering. Um, uh, and Achilles is the one who opens, in the case of Aeneas, I think, with uh, the taunting. So, uh, you know, by accusing Aeneas of having uh, certain motives in coming against him, uh, which is also very interesting. So, yeah, there's this kind of uncomfortable relationship between the talk and the action here uh, that I do find interesting, uh, like you point out, Brian. Well, it's also Achilles talks a little bit before he, you know, fights Aeneas. But even that, I don't know if I would call that taunting. Mm. That, that it doesn't seem that taunty, and it also says, you know, you should just just retreat, like <laughs> just go, just go away. I'm I don't even have time for you, mm. uh, which seems strange, right? And I'm trying to get my kind of uh timeline right in my head because achilles kills a bunch of people in this mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. many of them through the back mm -hmm. which is interesting right there's there's i think at least three people that he spears through the back in this book i don't think he's killed anybody in this book until after aeneas though right so he yeah, just I think that's out. right. Yeah, so we just kind of, there's some God stuff. And then once Achilles gets out there, it seems like Aeneas is maybe the first person that he actually fights. And he mm -hmm. he's mostly, I mean, he's, you know, he's throwing a little shade, but I don't know if this is to the level of taunting. Mm -hmm. And really just says, um, you know, the gods won't protect you as you may believe in your heart, and I urge you to retreat back to your hosts and not stand against me before you suffer some harm, even a fool learns after the event. Yeah. Right? So that's, I mean, it's a little shade, but it's nothing too crazy. But then, I mean, when he meets Hector, the only thing he says to him is, come nearer so that you may come quicker to death's border. Mm -hmm. And again, like, I don't... I, and, and Hector says the same line. Son of Peleus, do not help him to frighten me with words as if I were a child, since I myself well know too how to speak both taunts and words of slander. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't, is that what they're doing? And then neither Hector or Aeneas speak words of slander mm -hmm. or taunts to Achilles. So there's this weird thing going on here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. But like, I, I guess I would just frame it as like, what is Homer doing by repeating these lines? Um, and, you know, is Achilles taunting or slandering them? Well, let's, uh, I think I agree with about your characterization of the exchange between Achilles and Hector, right? And that, um, uh, that fits very well with the notion that what Achilles wants is to kill Hector as speedily as possible. But there's an earlier um, exchange, the kind of backstory to what brings Aeneas and Achilles together is a bit longer, I think. Um, 
So there's uh, uh, Apollo is pretending to be one of the sons of Priam. I forget which one it is. I think it begins with an L. Uh, and he says to Hector, uh, he says to um, uh, Aeneas, uh, you boast when you're drinking that you'd be happy to face Achilles in single combat. So why don't you go out and do it already? And Aeneas says, well, um, I've done it before. And Zeus saved me. I had to run away. Achilles was out there... Um, in the fields in front of Troy, uh, spoiling something, and uh, I went and faced him, and I had to flee. Only Zeus saved me. Um, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try it again, because who knows? Um, Zeus decides who wins. Maybe I'll win this time. And then when he shows up in front of Achilles, Achilles says, uh, you remember the last time we faced one another, you ran away from me, and only Zeus saved you. Why are you here now? And he offers two possibilities. He says, um, a, uh, you've been told or you believe that if you kill me, you're going to inherit Priam's power. You're going to become king of Troy. Or B, they've promised you a big estate if you kill me. But, he says, killing me is tough. I don't think you're going to be able to do it. So maybe you should run away again. Right? And I think that is uh, a more fuller taunt, if I can uh, uh, put, it, put it that way, a more full taunt than what... Um, uh, Achilles gives to Hector, which is just come here so I can reach you. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is that Achilles, I think, identifies in Aeneas something like Achilles' own aspirations with regard to uh, the Greeks, with regard to the Achaean side. Namely, here's a guy who thinks he deserves to be the leader. Um, not, it looks like, to usurp Priam, but to use their Priam's sons, right, to um, violate the ordinary order of succession. Priam has a lot of sons, so a lot of people in line uh, to take over the, the kingdom of Troy. Can I ask a, a question about the book that's, that's related to this tangentially, but is related also to some of the things that we had discussed um, in previous podcasts, and that is, I thought the way the book started was a bit odd insofar as Zeus brings everybody out the gods and says all right y'all go have fun like you go go do whatever you like as you please help as you please I'm gonna sit here and um, he says uh, sitting still watching to pleasure my heart so it's almost like he's gonna sit here and watch this movie and the gods go down and just I mean they really interfere interact in, mm. in ways that they haven't before. And it's like a, you can imagine a film of this. It would be the, you know, the special effects would be, um, you know, uh, extreme. And there's this wonderful line at 75 where Homer characterizes it. He says, thus gods went on to encounter gods. And um, I just find this, uh, I, I suppose I'm trying to understand this from the point of view of Zeus. Mm. Um, what is it that at this point he's, he's like, all right, Achilles is back. Um, everybody, I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to interfere and go and do as you would like. And of course, this then leads Apollo to bring Aeneas mm -hmm. into the battle. And so this is all thing happens because of Apollo. And so at any rate, I'm just curious what, what Zeus is up to here sitting, uh, watching to pleasure his heart and then what that pleasure consists. Um, 
Well, he says uh, they're going to be deaths on both sides, and he cares for both sides. Uh, it looks like um, his will that um, Achilles be favored, right? In other words, the, his will that's resultant on the promise he made to Thetis uh, has run its course. And so now what has to happen is that um, Achilles uh, is going to kill Hector and die. Um, and so the question is, what is this going to look like? And I guess the postponement of Hector's death um, bears directly on what it's going to look like. Zeus wants this to be an extended spectacle. Um, and so it's going to be extended temporally. Um, it's also extended uh, vertically, if I can put it that way. So there's a point where Zeus and Poseidon conspire to make earthquakes happen. And Hades, who we don't hear much about, we haven't heard much from, uh, gets upset because he uh, wants his house to remain concealed and the earthquakes threaten to expose his house, he says. And even the gods hate the look of his house. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want that to happen. So yeah, there's... Um, I'm just kind of groping my way towards an initial answer to your question. Zeus wants to see something that lasts, something big, that involves suffering on both sides. Um, and that's going to please him. Um, that's, that's my first uh, series of inferences uh, in response to your question. Um, and and his, his want is so great um, that uh, it threatens to... Um, display what's underneath everything which is ugly no i feel like the child is gonna uh, have a good machiavelli tie-in here uh, <laughs> at some point because just to some degree it's i can't help but think it's zeus's kind of master politician right you know zeus is the king of the gods because he overthrew uh, the titans right because he killed his father or wounded his father um, I'm trying to remember if he died or not. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> um, but, you know, and he's, and he's become the king of the gods. Mm. And so, to some degree, I'm, I'm just getting like a Ron-Iraq war. It's like, let's arm both sides mm -hmm. and weaken both sides so that our hold on power remains, um, remains strong. And that's I, that's not in the text, I, or I, I don't see any evidence in the text that that he's thinking through things that way. But you know, if if I put on my political hat, and I think this is a political book to some degree, mm -hmm. then part of me wonders uh, if divide and conquer is is not what's going on here with Zeus. There's there's is one piece of evidence I think that that is what's happening, um, which is Poseidon. Um, so initially, it looks like he's all in, right? Zeus makes earthquakes happen. Poseidon adds uh, earthquakes, so both the sea and uh, the land, I guess, although the land is shared, but um, both domains are quaking, and that's what makes Hades upset. But Poseidon, um, I think, pretty quickly has reservations about what's going on. Not only is he um, worried that Aeneas might um, be killed before he's fated to die, but he doesn't want to enter the combat unless he sees a god helping um, uh, Aeneas, uh, helping uh, Achilles, rather. So he's content to have Achilles and Aeneas uh, go at it on their own and have the gods supporting the two sides just stand by and wait. 
Um, you know, so maybe Poseidon is thinking, wait a minute, this, this spectacle is, this extravaganza is us um, attacking one another, we gods attacking one another. Um, who is this benefiting? Why are we doing this? This has the risk of overflowing some boundaries, including ending the uh, race of the Trojans when that is not supposed to happen. That's not fated to happen. Um, and so he hangs back a little bit and then eventually joins the other side or, or helps uh, the other side. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, what's... I guess I still... I mean, what's what's another reason that, that Zeus is is letting this happen now that he's kind of been holding both sides back to some degree and and not very well because i think it was was it hera and athena a couple books mm -hmm. back and he's like don't don't help and then they <laughs> helped and and he was like ah, i knew you were going to do that that seems to happen um, over and over again yeah well i thought yeah. i thought shiloh was implying another possibility so our political reading uh might lead us to suspect that zeus is lying about the pleasure he takes from the spectacle but I thought, and Shiloh can tell me uh, if this is a right interpretation of where he was going, but um, I thought he was implying that, you know, it'd be interesting to know and understand if Zeus is telling the truth. Yeah. In other words, does the king of the gods want to watch human suffering? Does he find it pleasant or sweet? And if, if that's true, what, what would that mean? Yeah. Do I have it right, Shiloh? Yeah, there's yeah. Some, something to that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's a tricky book. I mean, and I, I don't know if we've kind of fully explored Aeneas and and his place in the book. Hmm. Like and and I mean what 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 is our do we have a solid conclusion as to why he does the lineage thing? We've we've talked about it a little bit, but do we have like a solid idea of this is why in the middle of a pitched battle getting ready to face Achilles, um and him saying, like, I'm not going to return your taunts, but I am going to talk about the 14 generations of people that, you know, begot me. Right. Um, is, is, is that laying out for the audience as Aeneas's claim to the, to the throne and, and Achilles is seeing through that? Or yeah. is there more to it than that? It's a little bit like that. The, the um, explicit um, argument he makes is... Um, my lineage is better than yours. I'm descended from a better god than than you are, right? So the old man of the sea begat uh, Thetis, who begat Achilles, um, and uh, so you know he's he's a demigod. But um, Aeneas can trace his lineage all the way back to Zeus, and it looks like there's a critical split in the Trojan line, and one half goes to Priam. And on the Priam side, you know, aside from Dardanus, on Priam side are all the people who give names to places. So there's the guy who gives the name to Troy, there's the guy who gives the name to the Iliad. Um, and on uh, Aeneas' side, there's uh, no names that you would recognize um, unless you've been reading in other places like the Aeneid. Um, uh, and so it looks like Aeneas's um, line is less well known, and they're not, as a matter of fact, uh, kings of Troy but they're equal to uh, Priam's line. Um, and so, you know, the first inference is, so I deserve to beat you, Achilles, because I've got better parentage. And the second inference is that also I have a perfectly good claim to the, the throne of Troy, um, equal at least to, to Priam's or Hector's, right, in this case. Um, yeah, so I, I do think I have a sense of why there's this verbose 
um, speech prior to the um, argument that there's no need to make verbose speeches. Um, and as to the question of why um, Zeus is then encouraging these sorts of things to happen in order to watch them, um, does the pleasure of watching anything depend on the possibility of uh, the things you're watching suffering? I'm going to try to get into a, a sort of nasty <laughs> thought here, right? And I, I guess I guess what I'm uh, thinking of here's here's um, here's a, an example that might be a little um, exaggerated, but um, Dante. Uh, the Inferno is interesting. The Paradiso is boring. Um, because in some way, nothing's happening in the Paradiso. Um, now, it's true that in the Inferno, nobody's going anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, uh, Virgil and Dante who are passing through those, those things. But um, is suffering just more interesting than, than pleasure for some reason? Even for us, I guess? Well, something about the nature of tragedy, right? Mm. And... And the fact that we're drawn to that as some kind of art form, which is some kind of commentary on the nature of the human soul, and that why why are we so engrossed in these tragic tales? Like why are we engrossed in the Iliad? Because it's there's not a lot of jokes, you know. Mm -hmm. There's there's not a lot of comedy in this thing. So yeah, I guess it gets to the nature of like what is it about tragedy that catches our attention? What is it about watching people suffer that's so intriguing to us? And just to take one more step, so let's go to Lucretius for a second, right? Lucretius has this very famous image of the people on shore seeing the shipwreck and feeling pleasure as the shipwreck unfolds because they say to themselves, that's not me. I'm not suffering that event. And so they feel good, right? They enjoy watching it. A kind of pity, right? Um that would be that would work as an analogy if they were the cause of the shipwreck, right? If they had a little uh, remote control and they push a button as a boat goes by and that boat starts to fall apart and then they watch what happens. That's what Zeus is doing. He's the cause of the shipwreck that he's watching. So, you know, does that um, make it harder to say that his pleasure comes just from saying to himself, I am safe because I'm a god? And I'm different from those people who are out there, those poor people. And especially as a god, right? Because, and this might be why Zeus has so much sex. It's because mm -hmm. what what gets you excited as a god? You know, you, you can't die. You can't really suffer. I mean, I guess you can suffer physical pain if you're mm -hmm. not Zeus. But, you know, Zeus doesn't really get injured or wounded or puts himself in danger at all so what's the what's the methadone version of risking your life and your physical well-being it's having a big old battle that you can watch and kind of interfere with by proxy mm -hmm. and maybe that's how you get your yayas out mm -hmm. in terms of going through that emotionally and having that watch a shipwreck and you know being in control of it it might be, you know, even better. It might be even more um, a feeling of that you're in charge, that ultimately you're in charge, which is, you know, kind of what we talked about a little bit about with Achilles mm -hmm. um, and the hierarchy and the Greeks. 
and a little bit what we're seeing with with Aeneas in terms of hierarchy and how he wants to be in charge. Mm-hmm. So if you if you are absolute power, kind of incarnate, then this makes sense to stir the pot a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you know it's a Tuesday and there's nothing good on TV, so let's let's have a battle between the gods and the mortals, and let's kick back and enjoy the show. Yeah, there's it's one thing that's sort of disappointing to me, at least about Zeus. I mean, I don't disagree with what you say, or at least that it could be possible. But Zeus is not enhanced by the suffering; he's only entertained by it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, and that's what makes suffering so. Uh, ultimately redemptive or noble is that you could incorporate it into yourself and become something bigger and better and fuller Mm -hmm. than what you were and look back at it and say, I stand atop that and overcame it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Zeus, I doesn't really, I suppose have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, this makes me more attracted to the life of the human being. Yeah. The life of the God. No, that's, that's interesting. And the, the other gods maybe have an opportunity to suffer in a way that might be transforming um, more than Zeus does, right? It's his very superiority that makes him more capable of being static than the other gods are, um, even though some of them shy away from it. Yeah, so that that makes a lot of sense to me. It's interesting. It seems like, you know, the humans in this, it seems, at least the heroes, are trying to be godlike or are godlike in some way. You know, and Homer uses that language like the mm-hmm. godlike Achilles, the godlike Agamemnon. But it also seems like the gods kind of want to play mortal occasionally, like they dress up as mortals frequently. You know, you mentioned Apollo showing up as one of Priam's sons, mm-hmm. so they like you know like to play dress up, and then occasionally they like to do basically the laser tag version of battle, where they go down there and they go pew pew. But you know, the only thing that happens is they got to do a timeout. You know, or occasionally, you know, Diomedes will wound one of them. Yeah. But there seems to be some kind of attraction of man wanting to be or being godlike, but also the gods wanting to be um, or being to some degree human like. And I wonder that how much that tension is kind of fueling the narrative and the kind of philosophical undertones in the book. Yeah, that was a bad question. That was more of a point that was masquerading as a question. Well, no, as soon as anybody says philosophical undertones, you know, the conversation's been concluded because you've reached the deepest level you can reach. <laughs> Take note, everybody that's thinking about going to St. John's. Just yeah, yeah. Use, use, throw some philosophical... Nobody can argue with philosophical undertones, you know? You can't be like, no, they're not there. Or, or, no, you're, no, your undertones are wrong. Because you're like, oh, they're undertones, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. just... It's, it's, yeah, it's just a little paprika that you can barely taste in the stew. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, I think we're at, we're at time anyway. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. As always, yeah, book thanks, 20 guys. complete. Home stretch, listeners. We only got four books left. Uh, big musical number coming up uh, soon, so stay tuned for that one. <laughs> and you can follow <laughs> us at uh, Combat and Classics on the socials. CombatandClassics.org is the website. You can donate there. You can also rate us on iTunes. Helps the show a ton. So thanks a lot, guys, and uh, tune in for the next episode. Take care, guys. Bye.